Good morning, everyone. Today's reading is from 2 Chronicles, chapter 10. It can be found on page 366 in the Bibles in front of you. Today's reading is 2 Chronicles, chapter 10. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, heard of it, for he was in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, come to me again in three days. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be good to this people and please them and speak good words to them, Then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who you have said to me? Lighten the yoke of your father that that your father put on us. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had said, Come to me again on the third day. And the king answered them harshly and forsaking the counsel of the old men. King Rehoboam spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by God that the Lord might fulfill his word which he spoke to Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Naboth. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Each of you to your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So all Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the city of Judah, Then King Rehoboam sent Hadoram, who was the taskmaster over the forced labor, and the people of Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam quickly mounted his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Amen. All right. Hey, as we jump in, would you uh, join me in prayer?
Father, would you speak to us through your word this morning? Uh, your word is for our good, it's for our pleasure, it's for our joy. And so we ask for you, Spirit of living God, would you awaken our hearts and our ears to be attentive to what you're saying here? And I'm also um, aware that this text in line with all the texts we've been walking through in Chronicles just feels like an e-break from the, from, the, from, from the direction that everything has been going up until this point. So God, would you arrest us with the seriousness of what's going on in this passage. Spirit of living God, would you shake us awake to the seriousness of hearing your word and rightly devoting ourselves to it? Would you awaken in this room a spirit that wants to trust in your ways, to humble ourselves before you, that we wouldn't be a people found leaning on our own understanding, on our own ways, of our own ambitions, our own desires, that we wouldn't be a self-centered individualistic people, but we would be a people who, who's our, this is what I'm praying for, that our impulse, that our reaction to your words send us running into your house asking what you would have of us what we would need to do, how we would need to bring our lives oriented around the things that matter to you, the things that you've made clear, the things that actually aren't up for grabs and they're not, um, they're not unclear, that we would go into your house prayerfully humbling ourselves to receive what you would have of us, that we would have joy in you evermore. So God, would you confront us with this word this morning? We need it. This passage that my guess is most of us uh, either have read, to, maybe, maybe you've read, if you've read through your whole Bible reading, maybe most of us in the room haven't read this passage before. Would you use your word that doesn't return void? Would you use these kinds of uh, stories in order to grow us and uh, strengthen us and deepen us as your people? Would you set us aside for your pleasure, for your glory, for our joy this morning? We pray in your name, amen. Okay. So we've come up to this part in 2 Chronicles where the storyline has, uh, before this, has generally remained pretty consistent. Right, we've been marching along with First and Second Chronicles uh, of God building a house where He can dwell among His people with rightly ordered worship. Coming out of the tragedy of Saul that we saw at the beginning of First Chronicles, God has set aside David to lead His people moving forward. He actually calls David to unite the nation under His leadership. Um, he has called David to take Jerusalem. Right? He has called him to build his city in Jerusalem. He brings the ark there and establishes right worship in Jerusalem. He calls David to organize and uh, stack up all the supplies that are necessary for building the temple. He hands that over to Solomon, his son Solomon, then builds up the temple of God. Two weeks ago, we saw the dedication of the temple where God descended on this temple. And even last week, we saw Solomon's prayer of dedication over the temple as God has inhabited it. And it's been this beautiful picture where everything has been going to this apex and they've done it. They've accomplished it. The thing that's been building for this whole time, they've actually succeeded. It's done. It's been accomplished. And it's taken two generations to have it happen. But in the hearing of chapter 10 today, there's a stark shift this point moving forward. 
in 2 Chronicles. We, we actually see here this shift. Solomon has actually died in chapter 9. We see that. He's passed on the kingdom to his son. And the rest of Chronicles then is all about what happens when crisis comes to Israel. The chronicler highlights obedient kings and how their faithfulness leads to success and blessing from God and contrasts that with unfaithful kings who do not follow God's word, leading Israel into worship of wicked idols. And these kings face horrible consequences for their choice to lead Israel uh, uh, toward idolatry, which ends up being in uh, sending them into exile and judgment. And the rest of Chronicles becomes, in this sense, a series of character studies so later generations will learn how to become faithful to God and his word. And, and you even see in the text, right, it, it, it came up like four or five different times, these older men and these younger men. And it's interesting to consider how this word actually lands on this room right here. Right, So like, think of us in this room. Each one of us are products of the West. As Americans, we can be overly independent kinds of people, right? Independent minded. It, it really is one of the best things about us, and it's one of the worst things about us. Um, we're, we're these free spirits. We're critical thinkers. We get an idea, and we just run with it. We have this born-in impulse to rid ourselves of constraint, of limits, uh, of, um, of things that would hold us back, right? These boundaries of previous generations in order to pursue what we perceive to be a better future. I'm, uh, I'm in this book right now, reading through this book called Generations, and it's interesting. The author is talking about how uh, each generation, the, the silent generation, the boomer generation, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, the newest one, uh, which I didn't know this, is called the Polars really understand what that means, but um, how each generation has actually contributed to this kind of lifestyle, this kind of point of view, how each of us have uniquely uh, contributed to moving away from the values and the principles of their parents and have actually placed more and more emphasis on themselves as individuals. You see, pursuing faithfulness to God in community is like water and oil with individualism. Faithful pursuit of the Lord and obedience to his way says there's something bigger than yourself. Uh, God actually places boundaries around us and calls us to live in a particular way in community. And individualism says it's great to have friends and maybe a family and even a church and community and all those things are helpful and good and we should have those. But at the end of the day, ultimately, you got to sort through the different advice and the different values and perspectives and you got to kind of just carve your own path. Take the little bits of that and just pick out what's actually best for you. Sure, let people speak into your life, do your research, your, your parents, your friends, blogs, elders, God, Bible. Take those things, take what's helpful, weigh it, but you gotta do what's actually helpful for you first. And sometimes that means marching to the beat of your own drum, and sometimes it means jumping on the bandwagon with other people who are in the same sphere as you. And it's fascinating how there's cultures around the world doing the same thing they've done for a thousand years. And in America, over the last 150 years, we've been experiencing revolution after revolution. Charles Spurgeon says, it usually happens that when men will not ask counsel of God, if they go to other sources for guidance, they generally accept the very worst form of advice. When men trust men, it is strange how often they trust in the worst, not the best of men. How much does this describe our culture? 
right? How much does this describe the world that we interact daily? And I venture to say, if we actually have like a moment of quiet reflection on the mechanisms or even the ways that we personally make decisions, I wonder how many of us in the room, probably most of us would admit that that has actually seeped into the everyday way that we make decisions as well. When faced with a relational conflict, where do you go? What do you do in those moments? I found that it's not uncommon for us to treat counsel of friends and family and Google searches and pastors and Bible like we're shopping around for advice until we find one that actually rings true for us. That actually gets me what I wanted all along. I'll ignore this advice. I'll take this one because it fits in the moment, right? Today, we're going to see what happens when you act that way. Today, we're going to see what happens when you withdraw from God's ways, his commandments, godly wisdom, and in pride, foolishly pursue what seems right in your own eyes. This is the story of Rehoboam. He's the son of King Solomon. And after hearing this story read, um, like his rejection of this wisdom from his father is a rebellion against God. It's striking to me to think that this is the guy who is the recipient of the Proverbs. Have you thought about that? Like Solomon wrote the Proverbs, which is a whole book on how to navigate your life wisely. And he wrote that book for him. It was actually given to him. Like this wasn't a man who needed to go around looking for advice. He had storehouses of wisdom placed in his lap. When he met crisis, he does not go to the wisdom of his father. He doesn't go to trust the Lord. He doesn't go to those storehouses provided for him. Instead, he leans on his own understanding. He actually rebels against the advice of his dad in Proverbs 3, 5. His father says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. You don't know what to do? Acknowledge him, trust him, do what he says and he'll make your path straight. And then you'll experience healing for your flesh and refreshment for your bones. Okay, so here's what I wanna do this morning. What I wanna do is take this passage and I wanna compare it to the sermon that Ron preached last week from Second uh, Chronicles chapter seven, verse 14. If you remember last week, Ron actually walked through this roadmap for how we are to respond in the midst of crisis. God gives Solomon a pattern for how we as his people ought to respond when we face crisis in our lives. God says in chapter seven, verse 14, you could flip over there if you wanna look, a few pages to the left in your Bible, God says, hey, when you're facing struggle, when you've caught, been caught in sin, when you're facing crisis and hardship, humble yourself, right? He says, pray to me, seek my face and repent of your sins. If you would just humble yourself and pray and seek me and turn from your sins, then I will bring healing to you. I will hear your prayers and I will respond with grace and mercy and I'll give you what you need in your time of need. That's the pattern. That's the encouragement. That's the, 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 the invitation from God. And so what I wanna do in chapter 10 is just go, how did Rehoboam do with that? Like, how did he respond? And what we're going to learn is he responded pretty poorly and we're gonna draw some lessons out of that, okay? 
So what happens when you do not respond in this way? What happens when we reject godly wisdom and don't follow this pattern and instead lean on our own understanding? That's where we're going this morning. Okay, so if you close your Bibles, open them back up to 2 Chronicles chapter 10. Look with me at verse one. What we see here in verse one, and it's not apparent, so let me explain this. Rehoboam does not pray. He does not seek the Lord through prayer. He actually acts foolishly by not calling on God to save him in this crisis. So the beginning of this chapter is actually meant to be a record scratch. It's actually meant to make you go, what on earth is going on here? Before the foolish counsel, before the hard words of Rehoboam, before the murder, uh, before we see Rehoboam go up, uh, go down to Shechem in order for Israel to make him his king, uh, before any of those things, you see in the first line that he goes down to Shechem. This is meant to make us go, why on earth is he going there? That's not the capital of Jerusalem. That's not, that's not Jer- of Israel. That's not Jerusalem. That's not where the palace is. Why is he getting coordinated there? That's not where the temple of God is. Why is he going there? Shechem has some significance of its own. Abraham and Jacob both worshiped there. That's in Genesis 12 and 33. Joseph's uh, bones were buried there. That's in Joshua 24. And there's a few other significant events. But the point is not what's going on in Shechem or why, or past things as it went on there. The, the point is the location. Shechem existed among the northern tribes. So Rehoboam's in this, this fix of a situation where he's in a place of weakness and he's traveling to them to appease their, 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 their issue. They're, they're upset about something and he's traveling to them. There's 12 tribes that make up Israel. And before the northern tribes would accept him as their new king, the people led by Jeroboam ask him to change Solomon's forced labor and taxation practices. Well, now we need to ask a couple other questions. Who is Jeroboam and what are these questionable practices by Solomon? Solomon used forced labor uh, for many of his building projects. You can actually read about that in 1 Kings chapter 5. In order to erect the temple and several other palaces and buildings, uh, Solomon used these kinds of tactics. And Jeroboam actually confronted him in 1 Kings. Uh, He's actually uh, bringing a revolt against that. Uh, That didn't work, so he escapes to Egypt. But now that Solomon is dead, Jeroboam now returns to lead the northern tribes in their complaints. Now, there's something else uh, important here to know as we're talking about this. Look down in verse 15. This is not happening by accident. This isn't Jeroboam being a a, a radical off on his own. Uh, If you look at verse 15, this crisis is actually something brought about by God himself. And in fact, it's something that was prophesied about in 1 Kings 11. God has actually called Jeroboam to return precisely at this moment to confront Rehoboam in this particular way. He calls him to return and have his altercation as judgment against Solomon's idolatry. So Solomon, uh, and we didn't read about this, it's actually not mentioned in Second Chronicles, but it's all over in uh, Kings, that Solomon has actually married many wives, sinfully married concubines, in order to make uh, political 
uh, arrangements so that they could be at peace with other nations. And it, it made them rich, but it also made them idol worshipers. He brought in these other wives with their idols and even relented to let them build temples. So in this time, at this moment, Israel is full of idols, right? God knows that Israel isn't in a good spot because of Solomon's sin. And so he brings Jeroboam back in this scene in order to wake them up to their sin. This crisis brought about by God is his grace to them. It is his grace to go, you're not in a good spot. I wanna wake you up to this, right? Last week we saw when God's people turned in idolatry that he promises to bring curses to them as chastisement and discipline for their disobedience so that they will repent of their sin and return to him that they will return to him in worship. This brings us to the pattern of 2 Chronicles 7.14 that we talked about last week. The crisis is meant, this is meant to cause them to react in a particular way, for them to humble themselves, for them to pray to God for help, to seek his face, to seek his purposes for them and to make them repent for their sin. This is meant to get a particular reaction out of them. Here's the question. How is Rehoboam going to respond? Hey, yes, God brought the crisis, but Rehoboam has options. He has his own choices to make. We saw last week, how does God respond to those who humble themselves, those who pray and seek him and turn from their sin? God responds with mercy to hear their prayers and to heal them, to bring healing and restoration and forgiveness for their sins. So what does Rehoboam do? Facing crisis and opposition, where does Rehoboam run? What is, like, does he run into the temple of God in crisis, running to God's face, asking him for for, for wisdom, God, you brought about this. What would you have me do in response to this? God, this is your world. You, nothing happens outside of your gaze. Everything happens for a purpose. What would you have me do in order to uh, rightfully respond to this scenario? But what does he do? He doesn't go into the temple the record scratch is the coordination isn't in Jerusalem, not at the temple, not before the presence of God. God is not on the agenda in Shechem. That's the point. This is so significant. This is so significant. Um, he should have told them, I'm not going there. Come to Jerusalem. Let's together seek the face of God and ask him what he would have us do to resolve this conflict. Right? He should have invited them and not gone to them. Hey, the point of this is to make us go, hey, when we are met with crisis, where do we run? Hey, when we're met with opposition, with places that aren't uh, going our way, when we're actually stirred with opposition, where do we go? When things seem to be going the wrong way, when things seem to be going wrong in a relationship, where do you go? When you're confused and things seem to get tough, where do you go for an answer. Do you go to God in prayer first? Do you seek his face? How often do we try to, our knee-jerk reaction is to try to figure out what's going on in our own understanding? How often do we, our first reaction is to try to solve the problem according to our own understanding? So he doesn't seek him in prayer. And then point two, he doesn't humble himself. We see that in verses six through eight. He in fact acts 
foolishly by rejecting God's wisdom. He doesn't humble himself. He rejects God's wisdom. In response to the people's complaints, Rehoboam at first seeks good advice from the elders of, um, of Israel, from uh, King Solomon's elders. Now think about this. This would have been the men who helped Solomon decide on this kind of a policy, probably, right? Like these people came up with this policy. So I'm wondering if Rehoboam's going, I'm gonna go to the guys who came up with this policy. They're gonna get my back. Like, this is the thing that they've put in. I want to keep it going. I'm going to go to them. They're totally going to be on my side and back me on this issue. But what we see here is they actually reconsider the issue. Hey, the temple's already built. The palaces are built. We have no need for this policy. And it may be out of line with what God would have us do. And so they change their position. It's also important that we see that this council is not just gut advice from a group of people. Okay, it's really important. And I think the text makes it abundantly clear that these are seasoned men of God. These are the older men of Israel giving counsel to the king on how he should best lead the nation according to God's will. It says that he forsook their counsel, which is the same word used throughout this book to describe rejection of God's law. So Rehoboam here it isn't just rejecting some men. He's rejecting God's word here. In this proverb, Solomon warns Rehoboam to listen to spirit-led counsel of his elders and not to rely on his own understanding. This is the advice he got from his dad. Proverbs twelve fifteen: The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs nineteen twenty. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Proverbs 8.33, hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Church family, do you seek godly advice in your life? Do you seek wise, spirit-led people who have a track record of obeying God's word, right? Do you put yourself before people who are slow to share their opinions and quick to share with you God's opinions about different matters? These aren't people I'm talking about who just chapter and verse you, though, though that's necessary, but they're not just chapter and versing you. They have a decade of faithfulness and obedience to God's word stacked up behind them and they're rightly applying God's word. They have the wisdom to apply it in your life. Like, are you sitting yourself, are you positioning yourself before those people? Rehoboam wasn't serious about taking this kind of godly advice. Instead, he sought out people who shared his views. He rejects that and instead of seeking out God's will in his face, he seeks out listening to ungodly counsel. He's foolishly listening to ungodly counsel. We see that in verse eight. We see in verse eight, Rehoboam abandons the counsel from the elders. He abandons to seek the counsel of the Lord. And instead he seeks the approval of his buddies, right? It says several times here that he gathers a bunch of friends that he grew up with. And I don't think that's an accident that it repeats that idea that this is a group of people that he grew up with. Anytime you see something repeating, that means the author's trying to emphasize something. He's trying to get a point across. I think the point of here is, hey, these are a group of wealthy, well-to-do uh, group of people, privileged young men like him. They were probably just as fearful about losing the taxation and power that this policy provided for them. 
right? No doubt that these men would have been fearful of losing that edge. So out of their self-interest, they appeal to his pride. They actually puff him up. They try to prop him up with uh, rejecting the people's demands and putting words in his mouth like, my little finger is thicker than your father's thighs. How wicked. They were not humble. They lacked wisdom and they gave evil counsel to him. Now here's the key. Hey, if you surround yourself with godly wisdom, you become wise. If you surround yourself with fools, you become foolish. And that's what he's doing here, right? Rehoboam should have listened to his father's wise instruction about rejecting the counsel of sinners. Proverbs twenty two twenty four says, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Rehoboam is entangled in a snare. He's entangled in a snare of pride that he's not going to be able to escape from. This had tremendous ramifications for the nation that he was uh, called to lead, um, that his father warned him about. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Rehoboam isn't seeking God's advice here, God's counsel here. He's seeking his own understanding. And the counsel from his father was, when you do that, the road leads to death. And what's devastating about this story is it actually kicks off a rhythm that we see all throughout the rest of Second Chronicles, and it has ramifications for the whole nation. His pride was stroked. His anger was kindled. He got what he wanted from his friends, for he was never interested in searching God's will. Look at verse 14. Look at the anger that's going on in this man. My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips. I'll discipline you with scorpions. When you read this, and there's a couple other uh, pieces here that have allusions to the kinds of things, the kind of parroting that he's saying here makes you think of the voice of Pharaoh in, the, in Exodus. Doesn't it? Hey, you want, you want uh, us to ease your labor? I'm gonna double it, right? Build bricks without straw is what he's saying here. He's actually... Just as Pharaoh uh, doubled down the labor on the Israelites, now the king, his heart is hardened and he refuses the request of the Israelites and he makes their workload even heavier, which is ignoring his father's advice again to not stir the people up in anger with harsh words. He's rebelling against his father with godly counsel like a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. Proverbs 15, 18. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. Proverbs 26, 21. He does not humble himself before the counsel of God. He isn't seeking out the, uh, the Lord's way. He wants his own way and it's stoking his anger and he's taking control of the situation. Hey, here, here's my question. <clears throat> when you go to your friends for advice, what does that sound like? 
When you go to your friends and ask them for counsel on a situation, maybe there's a relational conflict, maybe uh, you're disturbed about something, how does that come out of you? What does that sound like? Um, Sometimes it sounds like, hey, I just need to vent something and get this off my chest. Or sometimes it sounds like, hey, I just need to process this. Can I just talk out loud in front of you and process this out? And I wonder how many times when that happens, we actually aren't seeking just to process something. What we're looking for is an audience to like go, yeah, that's exactly how you should feel. People to go, yeah, why would they do that? Yeah, you're totally justified in feeling that way. Yeah, that's, that's exactly, I mean, oftentimes when we're offended and hurt and we're struggling, we have these like missed expectations. We're looking for a place to like process this. Uh, because of these things, we become this like micro-focused on our needs and our, and our wants in a situation. And what we're actually longing for is some justification for what we feel, some permission to actually pursue the thing that we actually want. I wonder how many times that happens in conversations with our friends. We're actually looking for someone to go, yeah, that's exactly what you ought to do. Do the thing that you already want to do. Go after that thing or process that thing or look at those people according to your own understanding. Hey, the next time you go to someone for advice, ask yourself this question. Whose glory am I most concerned about right now? As I'm going to advice, go to people for godly advice. But as you go to them, ask yourself, let your reaction be, God, would you orient me around your glory, not my own ambition? Would you orient me around what you want in this situation? I don't need to get something off my chest. I need you to counsel me in what I ought to do or how I ought to live or how I ought to see this person. Am I seeking the Lord or am I seeking my own approval? Am I seeking the Lord here or am I seeking my own comfort? Am I seeking my own way? Rehoboam seeks his own way, which means when you're seeking your own way, when you're not humbling yourself before the Lord, there's no way that you can repent before the Lord because you've, you've got a giant blind spot. Like you don't see it, right? Instead of turning from his sin, instead of repenting for his sins, he acts foolishly trying to manage his sin instead. In verse 16, it says that they didn't listen to Rehoboam, obviously, like why would they? They reject him and as a result, Rehoboam and Jeroboam divide God's people. The country, the nation is split. Sin doesn't stay isolated, Jeroboam's own pride, his own self-centered understanding, his own pursuits get magnified across the nation. Sin of Jeroboam's pride um, is followed up by force, trying to manage it, trying to control it, right? He sends someone there to try to enforce the work labor and it only explodes even bigger, right? And Satan knows that if a house is divided against itself, the house will not stand, Mark 3, 25. Satan used two ungodly men who are reacting sinfully and selfishly Rehoboam and Jeroboam, to divide God's people, eventually the two nations would go into exile for this. This is serious stuff. And so what I'm wondering is, how do we make application of this for us in this room? I think this is an invitation for us as God's people to actually, in light of last week's sermon, 
which if you didn't listen to last week's sermon, you should go back and listen to it. Ron walked through chapter seven, verse 14. Now in light of seeing this passage, what are some invitations for us out of this passage for us to now humble ourselves, to pray, to seek and to repent? How can we wisely place ourselves in the posture such that we have the best position that this is our response when difficulty comes? What are some ways that we can best position ourselves as the people of God such that when difficulty, struggles, strife, opposition comes, our response is not to lean on our own understanding, but to actually rely on his understanding, seeking him, humbling ourselves, praying to him, and repenting where we need to? How can we do that? So what I wanna do for those applications is actually walk through at a clip chapter 11. We didn't read it, um, but I'll give you just a cliff notes of chapter 11. And we're just gonna walk through this and make some application of some postures that we can have so that we can put ourselves in a good position to respond according to wisdom and godly responses, not according to foolishness. The first one seems obvious, but I wonder if we need it more than we think. Prayer and Bible reading. Let God guide you every day through prayer and Bible reading. Every day of your life, make it a rhythm of your life that you are engaging, seeking, humbling, praying to God according to his word. We see in chapter 11, verse one, when Rehoboam goes back to Jerusalem, he runs into the temple and asks God for help, right? No. He goes back to Jerusalem. He's just made a mess of things and he doesn't run back into God's presence. He actually stirs up an army. He calls an army. Rehoboam's response in this situation is, I can still handle it. I can force this thing. I can gather this thing up. I can fix this, right? He gathers an army to, uh, uh, to take the northern tribes against his brothers by force. No, he doesn't go with desperation into God's counsel, humbled before him. He tries to solve it himself. Make it an everyday rhythm of your life to be in the presence of God such that when crisis happens, you've already built in a daily rhythm, a daily practice, a habit of your life of going to him before other things. Make it a rhythm of your life. Make it a non-negotiable thing you do first thing in the morning to go to his word, seek him through prayer so that he gets the, the first counsel. He actually directs you before you go to advice, before you go to action, you're actually receiving from him. You can inquire of God's will simply by reading the word and praying for the Holy Spirit to guide you. David recorded in a psalm that he would turn to God's word to, to guide his path. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Holy Spirit will guide you. He'll, he'll, he'll enliven and awaken you to his word, right? John 14, 26 says, Jesus says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I've said to you. Psalm 119, 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart. Are you hiding God's word in your heart? Day in, day out, chewing it, digesting it, such that in everyday circumstances and for when the crises come, 
you have God's word in your heart for the spirit to make alive to you in those moments. How, how is the spirit speaking to you? Is his word in your heart? Like, is his word hidden in your heart so the spirit of God would make it alive to you and bring your life into alignment with it? We're not talking about like Russian roulette Bible reading here or throwing up a Hail Mary prayer when something bad is going on. We're talking about daily communing with him so that you can faithfully follow him every day of your life. Posture number two is the posture of obedience. Setting yourself toward obedience, being obedient to God's word. This is in verses two through four of chapter 11. Chapter 11, verses two through four. How does God respond to Rehoboam's plan? He goes, no, you're not going to war. No, I've actually, I'm, I'm up to something here. God had made a prophecy, right? We saw that in verse 15. He had made a prophecy. This isn't happening by accident. God is actually seeing to this cross crisis. And he says, Rehoboam, you're not going to go to war here because I'm actually up to something that matters here. You're not going to go against my word. And then Rehoboam's actions is to not go to war, but instead his actions actually do solidify more of God's judgment. And I'll get to that in a sec because this is a place where Rehoboam is experiencing this discipline, this correction that he doesn't like. He's actually fighting against it. How many times do we get correction or we see in God's word uh, instruction on what we ought to do or what we ought not to do and it rubs us the wrong way and we don't like it? We see here Rehoboam actually not go to war, so he obeys God. But <laughs> just a couple of verses down, you see, well, but he does go and... Uh, builds up his cities. He fortifies uh, uh, Judah. He further places a wedge between the northern, uh, between uh, Israel and Judah by fortifying his cities and therefore further fortifying their division. So did he disobey God? Maybe not in letter, but absolutely in spirit right? Like this is the place where, yeah, okay, I won't go against his word, but I still don't trust God. I still don't want his way. I'm actually still going to, maybe I won't do that, but I'm gonna run way over here a million miles away from his heart and still do what I wanna do. God isn't calling you just to get in line with what he calls you to do. His goal isn't to get you to earn something before him. God wants to share his life with you, to have relationship with you. The ways we respond to his word in obedience says a ton about how we view God. Is his word life for you? Is his word uh, joy for you? Is it about being close to him or just uh, appeasing him? Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Keeping his commandments is abiding in his love. It's being close to him. It's having relationship with him. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love, he says, me and the father are one. We have a relationship. I wanna be in relationship with you. Therefore, trust me and obey me. We need to be the kinds of people that no matter what comes our way, no matter what the struggles, no matter the cost, we choose Jesus over everything. Faithfulness to Jesus weighs better than anything else right? If you stack up all the things in your life that you cherish, all the things that you want, all the ambitions of your life, they don't count as much as just having Jesus, right? 
having Jesus and that's all matters more than all of your life. That's why Paul can say, actually going and dying and being with Jesus is better because nothing in this life weighs as much as him. Count everything in your life as loss. It's not worth as much as faithfulness and obedience to staying connected to Jesus by obeying him. All right, what's the third posture? It's having a sacrificial posture, sacrificing. So prayer and Bible reading, uh, obedience and sacrifice. Have courage to make sacrifices for holiness before the Lord. Have the courage to make sacrifices to remain holy. Look at verses 13 through 17. What we see in these verses, what you'll see just by like scanning those couple of verses is a slew of people leaving the northern uh, nation, right? They're leaving Israel and moving down to Judah, which is interesting because of how much wickedness we see happening in Judah. It's like, why are these people leaving Israel in order to move to Judah? Like Rehoboam's a wicked king. Uh, he's a wicked guy. Like, why would they want to go down and be a part of Judah with this wicked king? Because they're not moving there for him. They're moving there because Jerusalem is in Judah. And Jerusalem is where the temple is. And it's the only in the temple that they are able to pursue the Lord in right ordered worship. Their devotion to the Lord is what's making them move. In verse 15, we see Jeroboam, because he doesn't have the temple in his country, he actually sets up a faux temple. He actually brings in idols and makes his faux priests and they start going through that ritual and the people say, we'll have none of that. We're going to move down to Jerusalem to worship God. Think about this. Sometimes we just like read over these words and they don't land on us. These are whole family groups moving and uprooting their families and moving out of the place that maybe their families have lived for generations. They've uprooted their entire family. They move away uh, from their homes and away from their houses that they were raised in. They move away from their farmlands. They move away from the way that they're able to even survive. It's extremely costly for them. They move their kids from their schools. They change jobs. They're probably getting paid less. They're willing to sacrifice everything in their lives in order for them to have a life that is more in line with what it means to pursue the Lord in faithfulness. I think there's an invitation here for us this morning. How do you think the, the first listeners of this heard this instruction, right? These are people who came back from the, uh, from the exile, right? And they're surrounded by nations, all these pagan nations that hate that they gather in the temple for worship. How do you think this put courage in them to continue to build the temple and to pursue right-ordered worship for the Lord again? It should have that same effect on us in this room. Like, what is God calling you to sacrifice in order to pursue his face? What is God calling you to change or realign in order for you to pursue holiness now? Where is God calling you to move something or to change something or realign your schedule or your budget? Maybe the place you're working, maybe the place you're living, maybe the place your kids are going to school. I don't know what it means for you. 
I just know that this is what these people did. And here we are again. There's an invitation for us to make sacrifices in order to bring our lives better into alignment of worship to the Lord. Maybe for some of you in the room, you gather for worship here once a month, maybe two times a month. Maybe this is an invitation for you to, um, to, to double down on being here each and every Sunday. I'm going to show up even when I don't want to for worship because I want to bring my life more aligned with a people who are passionately following the worship of the Lord. Maybe for some of you, it means adding to your calendar, joining us for prayer meetings on Wednesday nights. Maybe for some of you, it means actually removing a bunch of other things from your calendar, right? You're, you've cluttered up your calendar. Maybe your weekends are too busy doing things that, ought, uh, that don't actually... Um, that actually don't propel you towards the kind of pursuit that you want of the Lord. Maybe there's some things that have cluttered that for you and you need to remove them. Maybe there's some shifting that needs going on. I don't know. Ask God for wisdom there. Like go to him in prayer and ask him to make those things clear to you. Go to godly counsel. Ask for um, wisdom for how other people may have perhaps navigated this. Um, there's an answer, there's an invitation here for all of us. And then lastly, we see, and I won't go into much here because of my time, there's a sense of uh, posture of denial. And that's that we see for the rest of the chapter here is this denial of the flesh, a posture where we are regularly denying the ambitions of our flesh. We see Rehoboam come uh, in, in chapter eight or in verse 18, actually go on to marry many wives, sinfully marrying concubines, actually taking the sins of his father and now living in them as well, right? He is now sinfully living uh, not in accordance with God's word. And my question is, where are there places where we are prone to overlook sins because they just, you know, it's just what other people are doing. We tend, tend to, uh, to overlook them or we, they're like little pet sins that we put on the side. The invitation here is to take these sins seriously. When you ignore pursuing the Lord and seeking his face, Oftentimes, it puts you in a dangerous place where you give in to the ambitions of the flesh. Sin, man, this is something my Sunday school teacher said so much as I was growing up, and I just like, it, it's in me. It's just one of those statements that kind of comes out a lot as I'm thinking about how I'm navigating my life. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Every time. Can we have a posture where we are killing the sin in our life because we long to seek God's ways more than our ways. We want his ways. We long for his truth, his way, his wisdom, not the gratification of our flesh. But the reality is every one of us are sinners. All, every one of us is broken. The point here is not that Rehoboam is a sinner, Every one of us sins before a holy God. The point is he has shut up his ears. He has hardened his heart and he has set himself running in the opposite direction. Hey, there's even redemption for those of us who have done that. There's, there's, there's hope and grace for all of us who have sinned before a holy God. Hey, if this struck you as a stern shaking this morning, if it's a place where you're going, man, there are places where I am willingly choosing to sin and run against God's ways. I'm not humbling myself. I'm not seeking the Lord. I'm, I'm not 
praying to him. I'm not turning from my sins. This would be an opportunity for us to actually come and do that right now. There's an opportunity for us to respond to the Lord in prayer and seeking his face so that he might hear our prayers and respond by healing us. The main way that God did that, the, the, the hope that we have in coming to him and praying those kinds of prayers is because uh, in Jesus, he decisively dealt with our sin. This is where we're going to end our service by taking communion. It's at communion before the table of God where we actually feast on this bread and this wine, which says, because Jesus lived a perfect life that you were actually called to live um, there's hope. He actually lived a perfect life before the righteousness of God so that he could die for our sins. The Bible says really clear that the wages of your sin, uh, you deserve death. And Jesus did not deserve death because he lived perfectly, but he willfully, he willfully went to the cross, taking on our sin, breaking his body, shedding his blood so that we could be welcomed into fellowship with God that we could actually experience the righteousness earned for us by Jesus so we could have fellowship with him. That's what this table is all about. We should see this as like a fellowship table where we sit around it and feast uh, and we're declaring to one another, the only hope I have to be a part of this family and among our God is that he broke his body and he shed his blood that I could be welcomed in to this family. Hey, if you're not part of that family, if you don't actually trust Jesus as your only hope, if you haven't, been, if you haven't placed your faith in him for your sins, then um, we would actually invite you in this moment not to take communion, but to actually respond by faith to Jesus. Uh, you could do that this morning. You could do that right in your seats. You could actually tell God, hey, I, I'm, I've actually sinned against you. I, I've actually been fighting against you. Uh, this is the first time I wanna seek you. God, would you, would you reveal yourself to me? You could even share doubts that you have of him. He wouldn't be offended by that. He would actually invite you to share those doubts and to actually receive him by faith. Hey, if you need help in those kinds of prayers, if you have questions about that, um, we have the uh, people around the sanctuary who would love to pray for you. I would love to pray for you. And I would love to talk to you about what that could look like in your life and to come and put your faith in Jesus and be baptized as a follower of Jesus. Man, if you wanna have those conversations, we would love to have them. But for those of us who are taking communion, uh, that's what we're gonna do here in a second. If you're a communion server, you could go ahead and come up at this moment. I'm gonna lead us in prayer. So as we come up, um, we tear a piece of the bread and we dip it in the cup as a way of saying his body is broken for me and his blood was shed for me. Nothing I do, nothing I say or nothing I, uh, I can do will earn any righteousness before a holy God. It's what Jesus has done that brings me in relationship with him. That's the confession we have. And so if that's you, if that's what you believe, tear a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup, and you can come forward after I pray. So Father God, we praise your name. We praise your name that you have not left us in silence. You haven't left us uh, in the dark. You haven't left us to ourselves. You love us by your grace, by your mercy, because of your own steadfast love, you saw us in our plight 
and you came to us. You came to Rehoboam with uh, correction and you came to us in the person of Jesus for us um, to both confront us to the reality of our sin and to open up a pathway by which we could have uh, experienced your grace. So God, for all of those who have placed their faith in you, God, would you nourish them by this meal? Would you remind them of your grace uh, that is theirs because of your finished work and it's apart from anything we do. For those of us who aren't putting our faith in you, who haven't trusted you to this point, Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would speak to them. God, would you, uh, would, you, would you take this word this morning and make it alive in their hearts? Would you awaken them to their need for you, their, their desire for you, and that you would be worth more than anything in all of their life, that they would have a right fear of you, that they would lean on you, not on their own understanding. God, would you do more than what we could ask for this morning? We pray in your name, amen.